Hey friends, this is Mike Pacquion with the Best Speech Podcast. We are re-releasing season one, episode three, Jelani Memory. He is a treat. Jelani Memory, uh, he's the founder of the Kids Book About series. He's the author of a kid's book about racism. These things are so good to the point. His books and his company actually made Oprah's list of favorite things. True story. Uh, those books are intended to kickstart challenging conversations between kids and grown-ups on topics that, like, candidly are hard between grown-up and grown-up. So in this episode, we'll talk about his speaking career. We'll talk about startup world. We'll talk about being on TV. We'll talk about one of my favorite topics, which is comic books. And you will love his story about growing up with a Grammy-winning dad. Love this episode. Let's check it out. Please welcome Mr. Jelani Memory. Jelani Memory, my friends. What a cool name. Thank you. I'm curious. Let's start with names. Surely you've had people who are like, Memory. Like, what's what's like the... What's the thing that would be bothersome or, or what's just like a pun someone's made with your last name where you're like, dude, I've heard it before. You know, it, it doesn't happen as often as you would think. I would think all the time. It really doesn't. Um, usually people trip up on, on how to pronounce my, my, my name that I go by Jelani. But the story folks find most fascinating is my full name is Ancoma Chioki Jelani memory. Whoa. And then, then if people have that exact same. Yeah. Spot. I mean, that's like the most dramatic, like, <laughs> it's like a dramatic reading. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I've been explaining how to pronounce my name since I was, you know, I could talk and, and you know, the story about the memory name is it's a slave name, you know, it's, it's mm. the name that, you know, my ancestors would have been given by their masters. And so it's this, I'm this interesting amalgam of uh, fascinating African names and a slave name plus being born and raised in Portland, Oregon. Which is not exactly a high population of people of color. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, it's the whitest big city in America. That being said, there, there are black people here. We all know each yeah. other, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and we've made am- amazing contributions to, to this city. So, well, it's... <laughs> We all know each other. That's true. Uh, there's an episode of Blackish on that exact topic. It's amazing. <laughs> They're like at the whiteboard at the end of the day, and they've got like Obama's name. Like you know him too. The, you know uh, yeah. things like that. So that's just super funny, um, dude. I would love for you to introduce. So we barely know each other. We have a ton of mutual friends. First time I ever heard of you was doing pretty photography or video for my friend's 30th birthday. Tell us how you got to where you are, and then, then I'll start asking about speaking and how that plays into it, but what you do now and how you got there. Yeah, sure. Well, I started my professional career, if you could call it that, as a, as a photographer, shooting babies and weddings and senior portraits, so the, maybe the least glamorous stuff you can be as a photographer, but I loved it. Mm. And I would always try and go, okay, I'm doing this now, what can I do next? And that led to a career in, in doing some really serious commercial photography for the likes of Reebok and Adidas and Nike. And then I parlayed that into a career in making commercial films. And then I started a technology company, you know, raised $30 million, software, hardware, did a partnership with the Walt Disney Company and a few other Fortune 500 companies. And 
this sounds absurd condensing it like this, but yeah, I, it's just like, oh, and then I did this thing and $30 million. And then I was like, well, I'm kind of bored and yeah, <laughs> more like burnt out. But I, I feel so incredibly privileged and, and fortunate to have gotten to do things that I'm good at, that I love, um, and that maybe make the world a little bit better of a place to live in. And then also pay me money, you know, like mm-hmm. you gotta have that. And I, I walked away from my, my last company after sort of, you know, after founding it and, and helping run it for seven years to start another company. And I'm doing this crazy kids book thing now where I make kids books on really hard to talk about topics like racism or anxiety or depression or cancer or death. And, you know, we sell them directly to consumers. So we're not in Barnes and Noble. We're not on Amazon. We sell them uh, direct to customers and it's called a kid's book about. And, and I, I started it really for my kids. I have six kids and I, I wanted to leave a legacy behind for them. I wanted to leave these artifacts for them that, that they would grow up with to help start conversations that were going to be impossible for even me to start. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So was there a specific impetus? Like, is there a day where you're just sitting there and you're like, gosh, I wish there was a book that helped me talk about anxiety or insert other hard topic. Like what, what, what's the actual origin story? Yeah. So we're in the middle as a company circle, raising our series B in funding and series B comes after series A, series A comes after series seed. We're raising $20 million. We're pitching all the big Silicon Valley venture capital firms. Yep. And, and are you doing I the pitching? Yeah, yeah, doing the co-pitching alongside my uh, my co-founder and CEO, and um, you know, pitching is this exhausting, repetitive, amazing practice that you know also gets really annoying because it's hard. People will say very nice things to you about your pitch and totally not invest in you, and yep. sometimes squaring those things, you hyperdrive reading between the lines. And that summer, I was just burnt out you know, traveling, pitching, pitching, traveling, you know, I've got a a new kid on the way. I've got five kids at home and I wanted to do something outside of work that was going to satisfy my creative urge to just make something that wasn't economic, that wasn't something I was going to make money off of. And I told my wife one day, I said, I'm going to write a book. She goes, really? <laughs> With all this time you have? I said, yeah, yeah, but I can't write a normal book because, you know, it'll take too long. And I go, I want to finish it this summer. She goes, cool, cool, cool. And I was, she's like, what is it going to be about? I said, well, it's going to be a kid's book for sure because, you know, I can't, I can't write a novel even though I want to write like my, my sci-fi opus, you know, <laughs> this summer. <laughs> and I said, it's going to be about my, my experience growing up as a mixed race person. And I don't know, like, It'll be fun. It'll be for the kids and, and it'll hopefully keep a conversation that we already have going on around skin color and what we look like and race and racism, especially as I had my new son coming along the way who I knew he wasn't born yet, but he was going to be fair skin. It was just like yeah. the alchemy of genes had to come out that way. And I, I, you know, I literally like a handful of, you know, minutes jotted down some notes about what the book would be. And the initial title was the kid's book about racism. <laughs> and then I sort of, you know, furiously scratched out the, cause I was like, that sounds really pretentious. I was like, no, it's like a kid's book about racism. It's just, uh, it's just like my story. Gosh, that's so funny though. Like just that word change matters. Yeah. It's it, it, it just, I, I knew I wasn't the expert. I didn't yeah. have all the education. I wasn't the scholar. I just was telling my story. 
and and you know even then i wasn't thinking commercially at all at all i just i I like good design i like when things are packaged well and even if it's just for my kids want to do it right so took me another week to write it took me another week to design it and then you know full of spelling errors i I printed just a copy through a print-on-demand service and got it you know about a month later handed it to my kids and they're like cool dad this is awesome it's like great back to work like that was the end of the project. I was truly <laughs> like, my only ambition was to like get a thing that I could hold in my hands that I could hand to my kids. And then a whole bunch of really strange things started happening. One, my kids were now talking to me in a way about racism that they had not before. And it's mm. like, I've been here. I can answer all these questions. And yet you're answering, you're asking new ones that you've never asked before. And then when well, I showed, were they, they ask anything that just totally stumped you where you're like, uh, I'm, let me... You know, my, my favorite ones that my kids do is to go like, is this racist? And then they'll say something that arguably is pretty racist, <laughs> which I love because it helps. Like, otherwise they just go, come from a place of going, I don't know, but I have, a, right, I have right. an instinct around it, right. right? So giving them a, a language for it, I think is, is quite important. When I showed it to adults though, and good friends of mine, they were just like, they wanted to take the copy home. And I was yeah, like, no, like, like this is my one copy. Mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not going to give it to you, but can I buy it? It's like, no, I'd have to print more like, like, a, like a month for it to come. I don't want to take your money. Yeah. And if you're only um, printing one, like that's there's yeah. no deal on that one. Yeah. Not, you know, give me 50 bucks maybe, but, um, <laughs> and then that conversation would happen again and again. And then I'd be sitting in a coffee shop waiting for a friend to show up and I'd have my little book with me and strangers would walk up and go, where can I get that book? Mm. And I was like, okay, come yeah, on. Yeah, this is a pretty good indicator. This is like God <laughs> yeah. tapping you on the shoulder. Like, hey, you might have something here. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I was, I was a little bit annoyed because I'm already building a company that's doing a lot of good in the world. I'm making more money than I've ever made in my life. I have the last seven years of my life wrapped up into this company from just a pure economic investment stock, blood, sweat, and tears perspective. And I was like, I don't have time to do another thing. Like, come on. And individuals that I chatted with would say one more thing that ended up being the seed that sort of you would grow no matter what I did with it. They encouraged me to make other books on hard topics, mm. pour out something from their lives, a, a, a sibling dying, you know, something that happened, you know, a school shooting when they were young, the anxiety or depression that they suffer from. I mean, it's just like things that I, these are good friends that I'd never learned about or seen covered. And now they were talking with me freely about it. And I realized that my little book was doing something unique for both my kids and for my friends who are adults. It was giving them permission to talk about a thing that felt untouchable. Yes. Just casually bring that up. Hey, I'm Mike. I'm really anxious. Can I tell you about it? Yeah. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and the level of vulnerability, it just would be off the charts. And so I just, I didn't want to start another business. I really didn't, but I found myself waking up in the morning, thinking about it, going Mm. to bed, thinking about it, making lists, you know, going, I'm not going to make books, but if I made books, here's what they'd look like. And here's what they'd be about. And here's the people I'd make them with. And here's how I'd make them. And you get far enough into that process that all of a sudden it becomes sort of an inevitable conclusion that you have to pursue it. And that was three months later from having got that hard copy book, I was exiting out of my company to go start a new one. And now you're getting interviewed all over the place, speaking all over the place. 
waking up early in the morning, <laughs> setting up your own studio. I saw that interview. I think it was like three in the morning, West coast time. Yeah, it was early. <laughs> How has that? Cause I know this is not like the first time in your life you've been asked to speak about things, but how has your speaking background from pitching from things you did in college, how has that helped you? You know, it's a really good question. I think it has helped me in as much as to know that I'm, I'm not the best speaker in the world, but the more authentic I let myself be, the more me I bring yeah. to those interviews, the less I'm worried about my little ticks or how yes. nervous I get before I you know, have to go on an interview yeah. or on stage, the, the more I get the same feedback again and again, which is you were so passionate and I could tell you really loved and believed in the work that you were doing. And that's, that's all I ever really want to get across. Yeah. And I, mm -hmm. I think I honed that from all the sort of tries and fails and missteps in the early days where I tried to be like the best speaker, you know, like yep. the guy who got up on stage and like somehow wooed everybody into this sort of persuasive trance of enlightenment, right? Yeah. And, and meanwhile, in the audience, the audience can almost see your brain saying, I need to use a big gesture right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. exactly. And I just, I, I bring so much of myself to it that I think oftentimes people, it, it makes them uncomfortable in some ways, because I'll uh -huh. talk about things so freely, which is also... It, it, like, if anything, it's exactly what my personal life looks like, which is I am, I am a really big open book and, and not afraid to go there with those sensitive, uncomfortable, vulnerable places inside of me, I guess. So is like the way that you're talking right now, is this the same? Do, do you sound the same on stage or are you different? Cause right now I'm talking to you. I'm like, this guy, I feel like I could talk to him for seven straight hours. Like sure, he's yeah. really relaxed. He puts me at ease. Is this you on stage or on stage? Yeah. You... yeah no, this is me on stage. And I, and I think, cause I just wouldn't be good another way. I wouldn't be good at the, the overly practiced thing. That's not to say I don't get my reps in for my stories. I just find I feel more comfortable and feel more like me when I am doing this sort of thing this way which means there's some areas that it won't translate to. There's some stages that it won't play towards. And I'm kind of okay with that. Well, because this is what's interesting to me. I've been to a million different demo days where, and demo days, you know, you usually have a short shot clock, as it were. I mean, sure. five, seven minutes for the, I've been working on this company for my whole life and I've got seven minutes to tell you about it. Sure. It always feels like people are trying to compress every last thing they know into that talk. And yeah it winds up being a, a bit like throwing every ingredient into a recipe. It's like, but yeah. what is this anymore? Yeah. Are you, I mean, you bring the same relaxedness, the same ease when you are doing that level of pitch. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually think it's more important in that situation mm -hmm. because people are conditioned to go to just see the same thing over and over again. Hi, my name's so-and-so and I'm the yeah. CEO and founder yeah. of this. We do this, this, and this, and this, and this. Let me tell you about our market size, our opportunity. Yeah. It's like, it's so wooden, you, people just turn off, right? And you're trying to look for that one nugget of authenticity. And so what it ends up looking like is I just talk to people. And that like, to the point of like, I remember even when I would give, you know, speeches as a student body president in college, 
I, I often would just like sit on the stage. Yeah. No, this <laughs> it, is the greatest. Yeah. It, it felt comfortable to me. It, like, it felt like I, I'm just leveling with you. I don't want to, yeah. I don't want there, I don't want to be behind a thing. I don't, you know, and uh, I think people connect with that. They, they feel like they're talking to a person, a real living, breathing person who might be saying things they actually believe instead of a thing they practiced. And then when you ask them something that they haven't practiced, they're like, oh my God, what do I say? <laughs> right? It's so funny, man. There's an executive that I coach who works. Her dad started this company that's super big and important. And she is an executive there now. She doesn't like speaking at all. Mm. One of the things that came out in our first call is she tries to be her dad. Yeah. And you have to, you have to be you. Now there, are, I mean, we all have eight different versions of ourselves, of course, sure. but it needs to feel like a real person. Yeah. When did you, I and mean, did you have a moment of like, man, I'm doing this wrong. So when I started out and this is back in high school, when I started out, I was doing everything right. And I, and I mean that, in the most genuine, uh-huh. least puffed up way possible. Because all I was doing, the reason why I got asked to do things is I would share my story and people were like, oh my God, you have to share this with this larger group. And I was like, cool. Yeah. Like, it's just the same thing. I'm just going to do it there. I'm going to feel more nervous, but it's not going to tra- It's not going to be any different. And then, and then you do a handful of those and you're like, oh, like, but how can I do this better? Like, uh-huh. how, can I, yep. how can I really like do the thing that I like make people feel the way that I feel well, I'm watching somebody else on stage. And, and I think the mistake that I made was thinking that if I were doing the thing that I watched other people do, I would feel like I feel when I watch yeah, them yeah. <laughs> while I'm up there. <laughs> and I, I think it took me a while to realize I will never not be nervous. Mm. I will not be nervous. That Wait, is, are you serious? You think you'll never not be nervous? I think I will never not be nervous. In fact, I think it is a, dare I say a competitive edge or yeah. miss new to sports. It is no. go sports, man. It is my, it's the thing that helps me understand the gravity of the thing I'm doing, right? The more people in the room, yep. the, the, the higher that responsibility goes yep. to, to honor the platform I'm being given. And, and that means I'll get nervous. That, that's so, just it. Okay. But like, you recorded earlier this week over video for however many thousand people in South Africa, like you're not Mm -hmm. literally seeing them. So do you carry that same anxiety into that situation versus on a stage? No, no, it's, it's different in those situations. I think one, cause I can't see the faces. So I can logically know that. And yet it's different. I can tell you when something's live and when something's pre-recorded, there's also a difference in the level of nervousness when, so I, I did a thing really, really small, like literally he's like, you have a, a minute 30. I was like, great. I love a minute 30. I can do a minute 30, like easy. And it was at, gosh, the world domination summit. And I got to sort of announce the company I was going to start this crazy kids book company. And I mean, just like sweating, getting shorter breath, heart, just going, doosh, 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 doosh. I've got a minute 30 in a thing that's going on all day long. Like in some ways, nobody gives a damn about what I have to say for a minute. Yep. Like I'm one of those people getting up and announcing a thing and then leaving the stage that like nobody will remember. No, it, it's actually humbling to remind yourself 
you know, if this is only okay, nobody's going to remember that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like just don't throw up on stage. You know, like you'd be surprised mm-hmm. how much I kind of like remind myself of like, just don't do that. But I, I all at once also know a few other things, which is I'm actually pretty good at this. Nobody can ever tell that I'm nervous, which again, is a competitive edge to go. Yep, Nobody time. sees what I'm feeling inside. And then I got to bring myself to this experience. And I, I, again, I just, I don't know if that nervousness will go away. And I also don't know if I want it to go away. Like I am inherently an introvert. I love this one-on-one thing, but I yeah. also like doing it too much exhausts me. And I need to like go hide away in a corner and read a book for like you know, a few hours. Yeah, I know. I, I can't imagine a world where it doesn't exist. The only time I can think of that I wasn't nervous in a pitch situation is when I was sick. If I'm sick, I'm just like, I'm cool as a cucumber. Like, I, don't feel <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that is. Right. So do you have a, do you have a backstage routine? You mentioned some of the things like reminding I'm good at this. I'm smart. People want to hear this. Do you have a mantra? Are you listening to music? Like it's the morning of what, what is, what is Jelani doing? Jelani is saying his words over and over and over again. I'm walking through it and I'm, I am both trying to remember and capture that look in somebody's eyes when you say something in just the right way. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's funny cause I've, I've been doing startup pitching for a really long time now. It feels weird that I'm like an old guy doing it, but <laughs> the way that I, I actually form product now, and this is actually the started back with circle is I would tell somebody a story. Hey, I'm, I'm thinking of doing this thing and it does this thing and this thing. And I think it'll be useful for this. And you sort of, you see when people key in and yeah. when you lose them. And then I would just go, okay, great. Like now I've stat, I, I've grabbed out those things that resonate with people. Yeah. I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to add some things. Right. Yep. And you keep doing it until I can anticipate people's responses to the very things that I would say, almost like a comedian. And also I can know the exact questions that they would ask at certain points. And so I started to structure my pitches around. Oh, this is a Mike speaking tip. I love what you're about to say. Keep going. <laughs> the next slide in the deck would often be like, you know, so here's your, here's the question on the top of your mind. Like, what about this? And I would answer it. I would sort of anticipate those thoughts and feelings and questions. And my goal was to get people just nodding their heads the whole time. Mm-hmm. That if we were in agreement, by the time I got to the end and said, hey, please give me money, they were just going to go, gosh, yeah, just take my he money. He took care of all the <laughs> resistance that I had. Exactly. I don't have any left. Sure. Take my money. I mean, it's not that easy, of course. But. Yeah. Although genuinely, sometimes it is that mm. easy. And I can tell you with this business, having been as practiced as I was and having the pitch so tight and look, the product's great. Team was great. The business model was great. But having that talk track, I would literally be sitting with people not looking for a check, but I would give them the same story. And they'd be like, hey, are you taking checks? And I was like, no, I'm taking checks. Interesting. They're like, well, it, you know, like, would you let me in if I like wanted to give you a check? I was like, sure. Why not? I mean, I can't tell you like that would have to happen half a dozen times. And I was like, oh, like this story is really good. Now I need to execute on the story, which is a whole nother problem. But <laughs> yeah, but that, that doesn't have to, have to happen today. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to happen today. Man, is there... So where can you still get better? And do you want to get better? Yeah, I, I, I think I do. I, I, I think I can get better in practicing more. I think I get a little bit lazy yeah. uh, and, and oftentimes don't put in the, the full work, especially when I'm doing an on stage thing. Like I think it probably could use about twice the time that I take to do it. 
which is also why I think I default towards stories that I just have down. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I I just default back to, I'm pitching my startup, which means anytime I do a press interview, I don't do any preparation because I'm just going, I'm just going to say the same things I always say, but respond dynamically to this person and, and what they're, what they're offering me back and not feel beholden to like over prepare for those things. But on stage, I just, I don't know if I'm super good. I know people enjoy it every once in a while when I get the chance to do it. I just don't know if I'm super good. I also don't know if I'm cut out for it because again, the nerves are so high and they just start to escalate in the lead up to that thing. I, c- I couldn't ever do it week in and week out. It would, it would literally crush me. It would just like, you know, squish me. It would not crush you. What it would are you crush talking me. about? To get on stage for 45 minutes a week, you'd be fine. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know that. <laughs> Which is, it's, it's so funny because I, I, I feel like, so I'll give you a couple examples. I do a 9am check-in with my team every morning. I talk most of the meeting, giving updates and trying to help people understand for where the company's going, what's happening, all these different bits and pieces. I, you know, I'm right now doing four press engagements a day between podcasts and live interviews and webinars and things like that, like literally for 30 days straight. Okay. So you can just imagine how exhausted and sort of frazzled I am, but I, I'm, I'm good. I, I'm, I'm sort of like, I'm okay with that. If I'm at a restaurant with my wife and a server comes up and asks us what our order is, my, my anxiety just starts to go like real quick. Oh, well, that's what I'm like at the barber. If we get the the most nervous place in the world for me, I'm like, Oh, like, Oh, we got, do do, should I flag him? Should I not say anything? Like, I I don't know how to square the level of nervousness I get with certain things and not other things other than to attach it back to this. Like I'm a homebody. I am an introvert. I have some communication skills, but my worst nightmare is the, is the idea of speaking on stage to thousands of people every week. I'll do it a couple times a year and have a blast and treat it as a privilege and an honor. But every week, whew, I, I just couldn't do it. You would be fine. <laughs> there are people who are way more nervous than you, way more introverted than you. They do it every single week. I'm not yeah. telling you, you have to do that, but you would be <laughs> <Sure>. fine. <laughs> Listen, so here, here are like a few thoughts on that. One of the tips I always give people that I work with is listen to music while you're rehearsing mm. and then listen to music right before you get on stage. I don't mean literally you're like taking the headphones sure. out of your ears and then getting it right. But yeah, I like music while you're rehearsing for the following reason. And I discovered this by accident. But man, rehearsing is awkward. It's yeah. so weird. Like when in life are you standing in front of the mirror or... sure staring at a corkboard or whatever your room looks like and, and practicing saying, uh, hey, my, and then I started this book company and the book company is called, yeah. Bill, right? like, it's so weird. Yeah. It's hard to have energy for that. Yeah. If you put on music, and I, and I should say, I generally recommend like your running mix, like your power mix. Sure. Like put on something that has some intensity to it, some tempo, that will bring energy into your, your rehearsals, which should translate to being on stage. Yeah. And that, man... I love that. I think that's great advice. I think that's really good. That would take you... Just that alone would take you pretty far. Yeah. And then it's like, when you're about to get on the stage, and this is actually me repeating something of what you said earlier, I'm going to put my own language to it, but you're giving the audience a gift. Yeah. So, Jelani, it's actually selfish of you to not speak every single week. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding about that, but really, truly. Yeah. They're there's a reason why your books are taking off right now. Yeah. People don't know what to do with this. Yeah, I, I hope so. And, and 
again, like I'm saying yes to everything right now. And and because I, I treat it as a privilege and an honor. And that means, you know, the first grade classroom who wants to chat with me from my hometown and the South African sort of, you know, consortium of, you know, Jewish leaders chatting with them and everywhere in between. It's just not sustainable for me. Um, sure. I'm, I'm good at being in the lab and tinkering yeah. and then trying to come up with something to communicate out to the world, whether that's through my products or, or me or yeah. through a company I create. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take it to heart. I've got a thing that I'm doing in the fall, either in Florida or it'll be online, probably online. And I'm, I'm nervous right now about it. That's like good. right now. That's good. <laughs> you just have to get to the other side of it. Yeah. Have you yeah, ever no. gotten to the other side? You never have, have you? Uh, to the other side of the nerve, uh, like of the, the nerves or the other side of the event. Well, you've gotten to the other side. of the event. <laughs> Have you ever gotten to the other side of the nerve? Let, let me just like walk you through. Sure. Cause I, there was this one speech that I gave where I had a moment where I was about to go on stage and I was like, I'm not nervous. Am I doing this wrong? And it just occurred to me. I knew it was good. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I agree. And almost everybody who comes on this show talks about nerves on some level, but sometimes nerves are really good. And other times, like, you don't actually need to have them. Yeah. Like, what you actually need to have is anxiousness, but not anxiety. Sure. Anxiousness to get out on stage. And, dude, that's how I just love that. Like, the moment my foot hits the stage or the moment, if it's online, the moment that I sign on. Sure. Like, I know this is good. Let's make it fun. Yeah. So it's funny because I, I don't ever struggle with wondering whether it's good or not. I know it's good. The nerves are still there though. Mm. That okay. it's, uh, it's, and again, it's, it's contextual. Um, sure. And you're allowed uh, to have it too. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, also it's like, it's not, it's not my primary thing. I, I want, I want to transcend beyond just my words or the things I can show up to you. And that for me, it comes in the form of products. I look at my products as a form of story. Yeah. In fact, I can tell you that circle as an embodiment in the seven years I spent there, it was my job to come up with the story of the company and the story of the products. And then I got to design and create what the products did out of that story, which is a really unusual product Mm. development sort of method. And yet I think it's the only way that makes sense. And I would argue that's exactly the way Apple makes their products and why we love them so much is they actually start with a story and then they work backwards from there. So, okay. Give, give us an example of that. Something that you did that way at circle. Sure. So in the very earliest days, we, we wanted to come up with a way for parents to have peace of mind around how their kids spent time online. So already that's sort of like a story nugget, right? Yeah. Like that's a, that's a product feature, but it's also like, what's the story around that? And it's like this. Yeah. Feature. You can just, you picture that instantly. Like mom and dad are sitting there and they're, they're saying like, gosh, I wonder how junior's. I can see he's on the computer over there. What's he doing? Yeah. I don't want to yeah, hover over there doing? all the time. What's he on? Yeah. yeah. And then it's like this, like, do I look through his history? That feels creepy. That feels weird. And then not like he could be in garage band making, you know, this amazing thing, or he could be just scrolling, you know, when TikTok wasn't then back then, but you know, he could be doing just totally wasting time. Yeah. I have no idea. So I'm going to go probably to the darkest place, which is, you know, he must be doing something awful and wasting <laughs> time and, you know, sort of screwing up his brain. And the anxiety that you feel as a parent and not being able to differentiate between the situations. So we just wanted to make sort of the clear cut lines that you would know when your kid was wasting time and when they weren't, right? Which then sort of comes in the form of like, what does that mean from a technology and from 
a user experience perspective, right? So then, then you start to get to the product. Another thing we did was we wanted it to be really easy to use, just centering around the story of going, the average mom and dad don't really know how their router works, don't enjoy their experience with it. In fact, they hate their router, right? It's, o- it's only ever noticed when it's doing something completely wrong and bad. And totally. what do the blinking lights do? Like nobody knows. Nobody right? knows, yeah. So we were like, okay, story understood. It can't be a router. In fact, it can't connect to your router physically because it'll the association, the emotional association with that will be too complex. So we took that as a story and we came up with a brand new way of managing a network that did not exist before, at least didn't exist in sort of popular use. Oh man, I can just see that. My brain always fast forwards to what would this sound like on video or what would this look like in a speech? And I could just see that. Okay, every single one of you in the room has a router at home. Routers generally look like this. Mm-hmm. They've got all these blinking lights. Does a single one of you know what any of these lights do? Yeah. Probably know the top one because that tells you if it's on or not. Outside of that, <laughs> none of you know what any of this is. We're yeah. here to fix that today. Oh, that's yeah. gold. Yeah. And so that, like, what's funny is that came from my background, not as a technologist, because I had no background in technology. It came from me as a kid drawing sneakers when I was in high school and wanting to, you know, read comic books all the time and then spending my life as a photographer. Like my job was to communicate a complete story in a single image, right? Which is, I don't even know if people think about it that way, but that's what it is. You need to look at the image and completely understand in a second what it is and what it's saying and what it's about. Hold on. Do you use slides when you present or no? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Cause this is, I've never been able to talk to someone about this before. Comic books for me, I think are where I understand speaking so well, Mm. because that's essentially what a speech is. Yeah. The backdrop is the illustration. Yeah. But most people think the backdrop, nobody would say it this way, but the way that most people treat slides is that the backdrop is like the script, like the script should be behind you. And that's, that's not what it is. Yeah. What what comics were you into? Oh, I mean, X-Men, of course. Uh, Yeah. it's funny. I, I've actually looked back through my comics and I realized I had like Guardians of the Galaxy even back then, you know, and sort of like, original. I had original Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, too. like '92. Old, man, old school X Men is nowhere near as good as I remember it being. Yeah. Like now that I'm older, <laughs> I feel like I'm a total Batman, Spider Man type guy. Sure. Yeah, yeah. X Men. I was like, oh, every time there's a battle, basically the same thing happened. You know, yeah. reading it now. Sure. Yeah. No, that's fair. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I read graphic novels still just about every day and into things like, you know, saga and why the last man and Watchmen before Watchmen, you know, just read Superman, red sun and to just tickle my brain in the right way from a story that, perspective. That man hush is a good one. Too. Oh, but yeah, I love that one. Cause that one, that one does such a good job of building tension, taking you in a direction where you think the tension is going to get released it yeah. doesn't get released for a while. Yeah. The artwork's fantastic, which is helpful in comics, but it's such a great job of storytelling and not rushing through the story. Yeah. 100%. Now, I can't imagine if I was buying those books every week and waiting eight months versus just reading the graphic novel. Yeah. But man, that <laughs> one's so good. Yeah. Okay. We need to start wrapping up. I always like to give our guests. I mean, we could have a whole separate podcast on comic books, which do that someday. Yeah. I always like to give our guests a chance to tell a story because stories are the things that stick with us. It's obviously been a big helper in your life to be a good storyteller. I'd love to hear a story from you and then we'll just briefly outro it on how you've used that from stage or how you could use it from stage. Sure. 
Well, I'll give you a story in exactly the same way that I've been talking this whole time. Love it. <laughs> so I grew up to two drug addicted parents. My dad was a famous jazz musician. My mom was a nurse. I didn't know at the time, but my life was complete chaos. But when you're two and three, mm. you don't think about these things. <laughs> and my mom made the fortuitous decision to leave my dad to move us kids across town. I'm the youngest of four and get clean. Best decision she ever made for, for, for her, for me, for us. And told my dad, you can come when you get clean. I didn't know this story or at least that bit until I became an adult, but it ended up marking my entire life. My dad didn't get clean, or at least by the time he got cleaned, he didn't care to come join us as a family. And I would spend the next couple decades seeing him maybe a dozen or two dozen times entirely. Oh. Never came to a basketball game, never saw me play guitar, never saw me score a goal in soccer, you know, never found out that I was, you know, elected student body president twice in college, never got a birthday gift. I could just go on and on and on. And that left me with so many sore feelings by the time I became an adult that I didn't realize I was holding on to a kind of bitterness and anger and resentment that was maybe going to destroy my life and almost send me down the same path as my dad because I didn't have that example of playing catch in the yard or you know, um, talking about the birds and the bees with my dad or going mm. canoeing or fishing or you name it. And then one day literally out of the blue i'm i'm a young father i have a three-year-old daughter and my dad calls me i don't even know if he has my phone number literally at this point he calls me and he says you know hey son which is such a funny thing to even hear yeah. ever because there's never a thing I, I heard you know he said you know i i really want to talk to you would you be willing to come by my house today i said sure where do you live like that's how completely disconnected. I didn't even know if we lived in the same city, right. let alone that he lived literally 10 minutes away from me. And all at once, all that anger, anxiety, frustration, re resentment, bitterness sort of flooded in. And I wanted to say, no, I wanted to say, no, no, you don't deserve that. You don't like, you don't even get to call me son. Like I'm not your son. Like you, you haven't earned that spot in my life. So what do I owe you? And I'd sort of determined in some way to, to hold on to my anger because I, I thought I, I, I earned it, right? Like this many years, I get to stay angry. Yeah. Like nobody yeah. gets forgiveness or <laughs> help in this situation. But something about it, whether it was my, my, my daughter there or my conscience or some, some bit of, you know, obedience to just go, you know what, I should just show up. I don't, I, I can't predict the future. I don't know what will happen, but I do know all these feelings that are sitting inside me. They're not good, even though I've so, totally, totally earned them. So I drive the 10 minutes with my daughter who my father's going to meet for the first time. And I, you know, ride the elevator up to his apartment and, and go inside and meet his, his now new wife for the first time. I don't know how long they've been married. And there's my dad. He's in a wheelchair. He's on oxygen. He's missing a leg and a couple digits. 
you know, diabetes for a really long time, never took care of himself, almost threatened his life a couple of times. And I sit with him and he just starts immediately in to apologize. And it was like, if I had written a script of everything I needed my dad to say, when I saw him, that would undo all of that hurt and pain. He started to read from that script and cover all the bases and immediately. And I mean, truly immediately, I realized I had already forgiven him. I had already let all the bitterness and anger and hurt feelings and <laughs> abandonment go. And then something, something else happened. And this is really the crux and the, the takeaway from the story is I realized that I wasn't going to become my dad. As I looked at him there, disheveled, barely able to sleep in a wheelchair on oxygen, you know, about two degrees behind him, there's his Grammy sitting on a shelf. There's accolades all over the wall. And I realized he chose fame, fortune, career over his kids. And just by me being there with my daughter said, I wasn't going to be like him. I wasn't going to become him that I'd already been set on a different path that was completely different from him. And almost like a, a, a time traveling version of myself. Cause my dad and I are actually a lot alike. Like he, like he'd come back and said, don't, don't go this way. You know, it's not going to work Gosh. out. He confirmed in me, I think this sense that I was going to be okay. And, and because of that also my kids were going to be okay. That, that I'd already sort of taken a different path. Mm. Usually at this point, I ask how you use the story from stage. I think that one's pretty obvious, but like it's especially interesting for where you are right now with getting interviewed by national outlets and people buying your book to the point where it's sold out. That is, man, that's a... That is a worthwhile story to tell and a worthwhile story for me to hear, man. Oh, so thank you. much thanks. Uh, one last question. No way to roll. Give us, give us one speaking tip. This doesn't have to apply to everybody. I always tell people beyond what you would read in a textbook. So not like make eye contact. Yeah, but sure. What's yeah. one tip that you have? Yeah. And this will, this will sound really redundant as the, the rest of our conversation is gone. But I think say something that you believe. Hmm. Everybody has this meter inside their head that sort of says, you know, that's very true or that's bullshit, right? Yeah. And, and when you are saying something at the very least that you believe that almost can transcend pitch, pace, pause, approach, language, any of it, because it feels real and authentic. And I think the best example I can give of that is when a kid gets up to speak, they almost always can only say something they believe, like they're incapable of conjuring yeah. something yeah. and yet we are almost taught to purely conjure to, <laughs> to perform right and so yeah say something you believe oh that's even a good tip for me to tell people because sometimes i feel like when i'm coaching people i'm coaching them to act yeah and it, it would be more it would be better to say to people to take a step back and say do you actually believe this yeah because if they don't there's a way bigger problem yeah man that is a good tip oh thank you Jelani, much love, my friends. Keep doing good things for the world. Appreciate it. Uh, well, thanks for having me on. Yeah. One last thing. Just where can we find more about you? Uh, akidsbookabout.com. That's where I'm at. That's where my company's at. That's where our books are at. Uh, that's the best place to find me. Love it. Thank you so much, my friend. 
We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to our conversation with Jelani Memory. You can find out more about Jelani at akidsbookabout.com. And while we're thanking you for things, thanks for listening to the Best Speech Podcast. This episode has been lightly edited by my friend Doug Nori. I'm Mike Pacione. Music by Jonah Ramey. Listening by you. I'll stop talking about listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>